On this episode, we sit down with Dr. Charles Mangini. Dr. Mangini was our college band director and serves as the president of Vandercook College of Music. If you've ever taught any beginning or intermediate students, you've probably seen his name as a co-author of the Essential Elements 2000 Band Series. Dr. Mangini is a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I think he's one of the hardest workers and best musicians that Steve and I know. He also uh, has what I think is one of the best new teacher stories that we've heard, which involves a football game and a rather confused band. I know you'll all have a great time listening to this episode. Before we begin, I'll do a little self-advertising. Steve and I came up with this idea about a year ago and said that even if no one besides our own mothers listened, it would still be a great thing for us to have. Looking at our episode data right now, we average about a thousand downloads and listeners per episode, so you know we're very humbled by that. Thank you very much, and we're we're very thrilled to keep these coming. That being said, there is a cost involved. Uh, we record pretty cheaply. We edit the episode using free software and my home computer, uh, but there's a cost involved for things like microphones, mixers, web hosting, and file hosting for files as large as MP3 and WAV files. Uh, furthermore, we'd love to cover a little more ground in the future and talk with some people in other states and even other countries through the means of Skype or similar equipment. As a result, we've started a Kickstarter to raise some funds for equipment and web hosting. You can visit our website at www.thebandmasters.com to view the Kickstarter link or like us on Facebook by searching for The Bandmasters. We've got a couple of set donation amounts with rewards, but honestly, any single amount helps, and all of the donations are going straight into equipment and web hosting. If you can't afford to donate right now, that's fine. Just keep listening. Uh, this isn't a money-making venture for us, but rather a project that we're very passionate about. We love sitting down with these people. We believe there are a lot of teachers out there like Steve and I that can benefit from the knowledge that our guests are so graciously offering. Again, you can find that link by searching for us on Facebook or by visiting www.thebandmasters.com. All right, folks, enough of that. On to the good stuff. Dr. Charles Mangini, Vandercook College of Music. So we're sitting here with Dr. Charles Mangini, and uh, Steve and I have a, a very close connection with him. He was our, our teacher at one point and still a mentor today. And uh, here's, here's my first question. We look at your bio. You're the president of Vandercook College of Music, and you're the band director here. And uh, I think you were on uh, the, the instrumentalist Advisory board. Advisory board, and, and a part of Hal Leonard, and I know part of the Rotary Club. And I think my first question is kind of a jokey question, but it's not. It's like, when do you sleep? Looking at all these things. <laughs> and, and that leads into kind of what we look at as, as band directors. We have so much stuff on our plate, and, and I think this could be helpful to a lot of people. What's, yeah, well, how, how do you deal with all of that stuff, and how do you do it well? Well, first of all, Don, uh, it's nice to have you and Steve uh, visit the college here. And uh, tomorrow marks the end of my 40th year in teaching. And hopefully there's 40 more in there somewhere. But uh, uh, it's been quite a ride, you know. Um, I think the boils down to your question is time management. I'm, a, I'm a, just a great believer in time management. As, as we sit here, uh, uh, to my left is my trusty 
planner book where I have all my time kind of managed out for today and I have my things that I need to get done. And I think it's just a matter of taking a few minutes every day and, um, and, and making your to-do list. You know, you know, first of all, you manage your time uh, and then you organize your things. Uh, so you, you want to protect your time. I think that's really, really important, whether that time is being sent, spent for, uh, for work, for administrative work, for score study, um, for your rehearsals, your classes that you have to teach, or uh, if it's just time that you're putting in your calendar that you want to spend with family and friends. Uh, I think you block out time. You know, when you start with the big chunks and, and you work down to the minutes. And, and you'll find that the productivity comes in the wasted minutes uh, when, it, when it gets down to the end. You got five minutes here, you got seven minutes here, you got three minutes here. What am I going to do next? Well, if you have a plan and you have it written down, you look at your plan, there's so much you can do in, in three minutes, you know. Um, uh, yesterday, I got Husband of the Year award from my wife. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> It was it was uh, it was seven thirty in the morning, and I was going to leave for school about seven forty five. And uh, my wife had kind of mentioned in a joking fashion that that she would get the dishes when she came back from her workout. And uh, I, I had finished my coffee and finished reading the paper, and and basically said, you know, I got fifteen minutes. I can get those dishes knocked out for. Her. And, and so it looked like a, a daunting task, but it wasn't. You know, you just take a few minutes and you get the job done. And I think that applies to all aspects of what we do. So as I look at that, we're, we're both in year nine of teaching. I, I joke that I think we, we know enough now to think that we actually know something when you know, we realize we have so much more to learn. And something I've learned recently, talking about that time management to-do list, is, is I've tried to put score study and, and all that at the top, at least as a high school band director. And I, I didn't do that before, which, which sounds very, very bad. I know. But the first couple of years, it was, I've got to answer this email. I've got to... Uh, get back to the principal on this. We've got to get more kids in the program, and, and sometimes it seemed like music was the last thing that we did. So and it still you, feels that way to me. Yeah, a lot of so the time. It's, were you always like that? Um, was there anything in your life that just kind of you know when you were teaching in, in Kansas, right? <clears throat> at any point that that made you say, "I've got to flip things around," or was this just part of you? I think score study and and that whole time management thing is a is an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing process. Um, you know, score study isn't like, like okay, I'm going to go study my scores for an hour and that's done. Score study is about thinking about music and looking at the score and uh, giving it time to, to settle in. You know, I encourage everybody that's listening to go to YouTube and find a video on creativity by John Cleese. It takes about 33 minutes to watch. I watch it probably four or five times a year um, because he just identifies uh, how one can become creative. And I think to really do great score study, uh, I think one must become creative. One must get in that open mode, as he calls it. Uh, and, and that takes some time to do that. And when you get in that mode, um, you're able to, to look at things and, and imagine things and think about things uh, quite a bit differently. So, you know, after 40 years... Um, you know, I've done things like Holt's First Suite probably 20 times. And, and I still go back to it, and I still look at it, and I still rethink certain things, and I hear different things. But I think it's just a process. You know, you've got to have a system that works for you, and that, and that system could change. Uh, one of the things that I love to do is I love to keep two scores. Uh, I'll, get, I'll buy a score that I'm going to conduct with, and, and as much as possible, I want that score to remain blank. I don't want 
I don't want to have anything on that page uh, detract my vision from, from the music. Uh, what I might do is if, it's, if there's some odd meter changes, uh, I, might, I might just write the meter change in so that, so that it's just a reminder that it's coming. Then there's a whole other second score that I can use and I can kind of make it a diary to myself. I can, I can identify, I can go through and maybe, um, maybe identify uh, tempo markings throughout. Maybe make a chart of tempo markings. Maybe make a chart of dynamic markings. Maybe I'll color in the dynamics. Maybe I'll make all the, all the mezzo fortes and fortes and fortissimos in pink, you know, hot, loud, and go back and, and take the mezzo pianos and the pianos and the pianissimos and put them in blue because that's a cooler sound. It's a softer sound. Just something to, so that my eye starts to process it. Um, and, and, of course, you learn new tricks all the time. You know, a couple weeks ago we had Bob Reynolds on campus for a day, and he was talking about studying a score. And, and, and this is a great idea, and I haven't started it yet, but I plan to incorporate it. And that is he takes basically the, the general, general tempo of the work, and he'll set a metronome, and he'll just kind of put it at the background with that tempo, and that tempo is just kind of clicking. And he's just kind of looking through the score and studying the score. Not necessarily that he's studying the score in that particular tempo. He's just kind of letting that tempo wash into him. And this is kind of the, the speed of this piece, the general, general nature of it. Uh, I thought that was an interesting concept. So, uh, but I, I think there's a lot of things that, that play into score study. Um, I think inevitably, you know, you have a responsibility to try to realize um, what the composer's intentions were to the best of your ability. And, and you have, there are some other factors that you have to take in, into, con, into uh, consideration. You know, knowing a lot about the composer, knowing where their head's at, knowing what time in their life it was, uh, knowing what the purpose of the piece was. I think all those things are important. You know, I have a whole thing that I wrote about questions that you need to ask yourself every time you, uh, you study a score. Try to go through that list. So, uh, so one question that I have for you, we, we, we titled the, the podcast Bandmasters, and we came up with that because we, we wanted to target people who have been doing this a long time and have accomplished things that we would at some yeah. point as, you know, like to accomplish or at least aspire to. We got hate mail about that name, right, too. I had somebody email me. <laughs> so who do you think you are calling yourself a bandmaster? I said that's about the people. The people we're, we're talking well, about. Oh, okay, know. thanks. It's it's, <laughs> a, it's, un, it's unfortunate that the world is full of petty people. So, you well, know. I, I think for me, you know, something that uh, it's probably you know this is geared more towards younger teachers in their first ten years of teaching. Um, and so, a question that I have is now that you're at forty years, can you take us back to maybe the first few years of teaching? Um, and what were some of the biggest struggles for you? Some of the biggest eye-opening moments, uh, and just what you know, what was it like for you as you started teaching? Wow. Well, if you've got a couple minutes, to oh, I, I have, a, I have, a, I have a couple minutes. I'm afraid that everybody's going to turn this podcast <laughs> off as soon as they're done. Um, when I graduated from college in 1976, I was going to go to the to New Mexico State University to become Tim Lotzenheiser's graduate assistant. Tim had was leaving Missouri as the assistant director of bands and percussion instructor to go to New Mexico State to be the director of bands and percussion instructor, and he wanted me to come along as his graduate assistant. And as I was uh, on my way uh, to go to New Mexico State, I had gone through Columbia, Missouri, at the University of Missouri where I was, and I was actually going to pick up a young man by the name of Doug Hoover, who is now a band director in the St. Louis area in the Parkway District. I student taught with Doug's father, Jerry, when Jerry uh, was at Jefferson City High School in Missouri, Jerry is now director of bands at Missouri State University in Springfield. 
Um, so I stopped by Columbia on my way to go down to Jefferson City and spend the night with the Hoovers and grab Doug and drive to New Mexico State. And I came in to see the director of bands, Dr. Pickard. And he wanted to know what I was doing. I told him I was going to go work on my master's degree. And he said, well, there's a great job open in Kansas City. Oh, really? Uh, yep, there's a great job. And he said, you need to... Um, uh, he says, you need to apply for it. I says, oh, Dr. Pickard, I don't, my, no, Mangini, you ever interview for a job? I said, nope. He said, well, then you need to apply for it. He said, it'd be a great job. He said, these jobs don't come open all the time. He said, you need to go after it. I said, okay, Dr. Pickard, I'll interview for it, thinking that I didn't have a chance in the world to do it. So Pickard got on the phone, Dr. Pickard got on the phone, and he called about three or four people that he knew at the university that knew some people in that district or that area. Um, so I came out from Dr. Pickard's office, and there was an area where people would, would have coffee. And, and there were two ladies that I knew from the university that would be there every day in the morning and the afternoon during their coffee break, uh, Virginia Tate and Helen Bachman. Uh, Helen was in charge of records for the University of Missouri. She was a registrar, and Virginia was chancellor schooling secretary. And I saw them, and they said, hi, Charlie, how are you? And I said, hey, Virginia, Helen, I'm doing great. And they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, I'm just uh, on my way to New Mexico. I'm going to start my master's degree with Tim Lotzenheiser. And I said, I just met, saw Dr. Pickard, and Dr. Pickard said, I need to interview for a job, so I guess I'm interviewing for a job tomorrow in Kansas City. <laughs> and she goes, really? She said, where in Kansas City? I said, well, North Kansas City School District. And she started chuckling, and she says, you know, Chancellor Schooling was the superintendent of North Kansas City. She said, you need to come up and see Chancellor Schooling. She said, can you come up at 10 o'clock today? And I said, sure. Well, here I am in like a T-shirt and shorts, you know, and going up to the chancellor's office. And, and um, so I get up there at 10 o'clock, and, and there's somebody trying to get into the chancellor, and, and she won't let him in because the chancellor's schedule is completely booked for the, you know, next two weeks. And so I get up to her desk. I said, listen, if the chancellor's schedule is booked, you know, I, I, don't have, I don't need to talk to him. I was looking for any way out of this deal I could get. <laughs> and and uh, she said, no, no, just wait a minute. So uh, I went in, and... Um, uh, she went in and came back out. And she says, the chancellor will see you now. So I walk in, and here's this huge cavernous room, you know, 15-foot ceilings. And, and he's walking around, and he's throwing a football up in the air, catching the football. And he stops, and he looks at me, and he points, and he goes, trumpet player. And, and, and I said, yes, sir. And every time he was at the basketball games, he'd always come by the basketball band, and we'd all say hi to chancellor schooling, and he'd wave to us, and he had remembered that I played trumpet. Well, sit down. He said, I understand from from Virginia that you're interviewing for a job in Kansas City. And I said, well, yes, sir, I am. I said, I, I don't know much about it. Uh, I've got an interview, I guess, scheduled for tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And he said, well, who are you interviewing with? And I pulled out the piece of paper. And I said, the guy's name is uh, William Scott. And he starts laughing. And he goes, <laughs> he says, Billy Scott. I hired Billy Scott. You know, when I was superintendent in North Kansas City, I would teach classes in the education department here in the summertime. I hired, I'll call Billy tomorrow. I'll call Billy today, he said. So we talked a little bit, and he told me about the district, and I kind of went on my way and went down to Jefferson City and saw Mr. Hoover. And I said, well, Mr. Hoover got a little change in plans. He goes, what's that? I said, well, I'm interviewing for a job at Winnetonka High School tomorrow in North Kansas City. And he goes, man, that's a great program. He said, great jazz band. They got a great history. I said, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he said, uh, well, you know, talk to me about it. I said, who are you interviewing with? And I pulled out the paper, and I says, the guy's name is William Scott. And he says, Bill Scott. He said, I wonder if that's the same Bill Scott I went to Drury College with. He played clarinet in a band with me. He said, I'm going to call him. 
And so then we sat down and Mr. Hoover wrote out, asked me all these questions. These are all the questions you need to know in your interview. And, and I was one of those people that I always kept things. I've always been pretty organized kid. So I've always had a notebook, like a three-ring binder. Now they call them portfolios. But I had a three-ring binder <laughs> of, of, of stuff that every ever since my freshman year in college, I would just kind of put up the program that I performed in or if there was a newspaper article or a photograph or something. And I had this compendium of about three three-ring binders that was kind of like my whole college life. So I, I had those with me. Um, I went to Kansas City. I interviewed for the job um, with the high school principal. And I happened to have these binders with me, and so they wanted to know about myself. So I kind of walked them through my college career. And they were so impressed with these binders. And, and they want to know about the marching band. And, you know, this guy that we have now, marching band doesn't get on the field till the middle of October and football season's over. And, and I said, well, if you hire me, you're going to have a band on the field first game. Okay, so <laughs> coming on later, uh, the assistant principal who, who actually stood up in my wedding said to me, he said, I, I told the principal, he says, if that SOB can do half of what he says he's going to do, he says, we're going to have a winner on our hands. <laughs> and he didn't use SOB, he really said the <laughs> real language is there. And um, so anyhow, then I went over to, to, to see Bill Scott and he looked at me and he said, if one more person calls on your behalf, I'm going to kill you. And, and so we had a nice interview. The interview process probably took three hours. Uh, went back to the motel where I had checked in to change clothes, picked up Doug Hoover, and started driving to New Mexico, not thinking much of it. I was about, oh, two hours outside of Las Cruces, and I just decided to call Kevin Lepper, who was going down there for his master's, and, and asked him, um, uh, you know, I'm coming, and we're, here's where I'm at. And he says, hey, some guy from Kansas City keeps calling you at this number. He wants you to call back. So I pulled over, found a pay phone, called back to Kansas City. Um, it was Bill Scott. He offered me the job. And I said, well, can I get to my destination? I got two more hours. I said, I want to talk to my parents and find out. So I got to Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, uh, called my mom and dad, talked to them a little bit about it. They said, hell, that's what you went to college for to get a job. You need to go be a band director. Do it for a couple of years. You know, Tim will be all right without you. So I called back and accepted the job. So now this is Thursday morning. I jump in the car and start driving the 18 hours back to Kansas City to, um, to take the job. I get in there on Friday morning. Now, I haven't shaved since Tuesday. I look like hell. And um, uh, I walk in the high school, and the principal looks at me. He goes, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm, not, I'm your new band director. I said, I've just driven back from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I left here after the interview on Tuesday, and I'm back. And he said, well, go get, go get yourself washed up and get some rest. He said, well, school started Monday. I pulled in there on Friday morning. School started on Monday. And, of course, we had the, you know, the, 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 pre, the, the one week of teachers meetings and all that kind of stuff. But still, I mean, it was still an overwhelmed first job meeting this, trying to get through the instruments and the uniforms and the music library and doing all that. So you basically lived at the, um, you lived at the school that week. Well, so the first day of classes come, and, and in those days, that high school was in a block schedule. You know, I don't know why block schedule is new to everybody. It was there in 1976. And they had a big activity period over lunchtime. So lunch was, was 30 minutes of lunch and 30 minutes of activity. So you could steal the kids and get some time one way or the other. So uh, um, I got there. Band was first thing in the morning, 8 o'clock. I walk in the room. The band's there, and I gave him the old hellfire and brimstone. There's a new sheriff in town. Things are going to be different. We're going to have a band on the field this Friday. And they looked at me like, you're nuts, you know. 
and I had all the little the little folders ready and the the lie the flip folders and I had everything all ready to go. And I said, okay, get out your horns. And I look around and nobody's got their horns with them. I didn't realize that nobody was bringing in with their instruments. There's one kid that had his horn, Paul Brewer. He played baritone in the back row. So I'm going, what, what do you mean? They go, well, we never play on the first day. Well, you're playing on the first day today, so get out of here and go get your horns. We're going to meet it during seminar time today at lunch. And, and they were like furious with me, but I threw them all out of the band room. So they all went and called their parents and had to get their horns back. And the principal said, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And I said, well, sorry, but we got a home football game on Friday. So uh, the Democratic National Convention had just come through Kansas City. And Jimmy Carter had gotten the nomination. And Jimmy Carter was now going to meet Gerald Ford in the, in, the, in the election. So I'm going like, I remember my college days. And, and early in my college days, they did the same exact uh, halftime show, and I just kind of amended it. So it was it was a perfect plan. The plan was flawless. We were going to take the band, put them in a block band, march down the field to the school fight song, figuring that the kids would know the fight song, right? Stop, turn, then we would play um, a baby elephant walk, and we would hold up signs that read Ford, F-O-R-D, and a star on each end, right? Six signs. And, and in honor of Gerald Ford. And then when that got done, we were going to turn the signs over and they were going to read Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R. And we were going to play Sweet Georgia Brown for Jimmy Carter being from Georgia. And then we were going to put the, the script, went, we were going to put the, the, the results into a computer and see who's going to be the winner of the new election. And then the winner was an Archie Bunker, right? Bunker, it said, from those All in the Family. So we played theme from All in the Family, right? He was the new president. This is in two days you're going to do this. In a week. This was a week. Five days we did this, right? Well, we made the signs. We stayed up and got cardboard and stuff and made the signs. So, so and then, and then, and then we're marching off. And then we're marching off the field to the fight song. It was flawless, right? Okay, so we stayed up day and night, man. We made these signs. We had tempera paint all over everything, but we had it. It was set to go. So come Friday night, and everything was working perfectly. It was perfect. Come Friday night, we jump on the bus. We go about four miles to the district stadium. We get down there, and, and you're, when you're a first-year teacher, um, you inherit the drum major. And I had just a sweetheart of a gal. I won't mention her name. Uh, sweetheart of a gal, but... She probably shouldn't have been the drum major. She was a nice gal, right? So the, the trick was she was in charge of the signs. And she was in charge of a couple of things, and I'd given her a list. So I got to the stadium, and we're in like the starting second quarter. I said, Sherry, you got the signs? And she looked at me like, what signs? And I said, you know, the signs we spent all week making. She goes, no. So I had to go to the assistant principal. He drove back to school to get the signs, ran the signs in just about as halftime's coming on. So, okay, so the band is going to set up on the, on, the, on the end line, not the goal line, but the end line, right? They're all kind of stacked there in their, in their block band ranks. And then she's going to give four whistles, and they're going to move to the goal line. She's going to call them to attention. There's going to be a roll-off, and the band is going to go down the field playing the fight song. They're going to stop, turn, and play it. Now, that night at the home football game, we are playing Jefferson City High School the school where I student taught. And they have their pep band there, which is like a heat-seeking missile. I mean, they were just like the University of Oklahoma marching band. I mean, like they were unbelievable. So I've, I've got enough nerves on my plate anyhow, right? First time, first show. So I said, okay, it's getting halftime. Stack them up in the end zone, Sherry. So we moved them to the end zone, thinking that the drum major... So anyhow, uh, um, <laughs> so the, the halftime goes, and I go, Sherry, hit it. So Sherry blows the wrong set of whistles. 
She blows the set of whistles to give the roll off and the horns up and start marching with the fight song. So half the band does the horns up and starts playing the fight song. Half the band moves to the goal line and and for the next 17 hours, which is actually about <laughs> a minute and 45 seconds, <laughs> this oozing sore just kind of kind of slimes down the field with this almost I can make it out kind of sound. And I'm sitting there and I am just dying. I am screaming and yelling and hollering and dying. That's not like so you. so the band Yeah, right. So the band it, the band doesn't get to the end of the tune, they just give up. You know? <laughs> I mean, so so they get there and I'm looking and like there's six kids together and there's fifteen yards with nothing, and then there's twenty kids, and there's one kid standing by himself, and you know, so so anyhow, okay, so we get the girls in place, and we kind of move some people around, and we go through the show, and then we get done, and we get them off the field. And as I'm coming off the field, who's standing at the fence but Dr. Pickard, the old director of bands? And he is laughing his butt off. And he went, Mangini, he said, you just stay at it. He said, it's going to get better. And it has over 40 years. So, I mean, it, you know, it's... You know what it is? It's it's a matter of trial and error. It's a matter of learning from your mistakes, and and it's a matter of of uh, not giving up, believing in yourself, knowing you can do it. And, and you know, I mean, nothing motivates like no alternative. Can I ask? So, uh, how long did you stay in that particular position? I stayed nine years at that school. Okay. I stayed nine years at Olathe North High School, and I'm just finishing twenty two here at Vandercook. So in in either just that first job or in each job, how long um, do you think it's taken to to develop a culture that was reflective of what you wanted and to get your your students and your community bought into what your vision for the program was? That's a great question, Steve. Um, the first year, you just try to survive. You know, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna think you're not changing anything, and you're gonna change a lot. I'll, I'll go to my second job. In Olathe, Kansas, they had a, a drill team. You know, this is be this was prehistoric color guard girls with the pom poms and the majorette boots and silk skirts and blouses and stuff and and um, uh, and they were great. I mean, they were just very precision. Didn't didn't do what I wanted to do in terms of adding any sort of artistic element to it, but they were very very good. So the only thing I managed to get done at the end of one year with that particular group in terms of moving them was they used to have red tassels on their right boots and blue tassels on their left boots because the school colors were red, white, and blue, and their white boots. And their mothers used to get together and make these tassels at a coffee clutch party where they could, whatever it was. So I actually got them to, to put a red and blue tassel on each boot as opposed to just red on one boot and blue on the other. That was the total change. <laughs> I was able to happen in one year with that with that particular group, you know. So I, I think the first year, just, you know, assess the situation, find out who the people are, make friends, play nice, reach out to the parents, communicate often, 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 often. You can't over-communicate. Uh, and, and I've got, I can show you a binder here that I had from my very first year and my second job where I did a daily 
uh, newsletter to the students. Every day they got a newsletter and it went to the principals and it went to the guidance counselors and went to the coaches and it went to everybody. But every day I wrote this, this newsletter and it was like the old Paul Harvey news and comment. It was like, this is the stuff you need to know. And this is the why we need to do it this way. A little bit of, a little bit of philosophy on it. So I think the first year is, is survival mode. I think the second year, you know, you've got, You've got some of the believers from the first year, and you've got a whole new crop of kids that you've always been their band director. And then I think by the third year, you've weeded out the, the kids who, who don't believe in what you're doing, that like the other person or like it the other way. And so I think by the third year, you can really start to re really make some great headway in rock and roll. And do you think that um, applies to, did that apply to you in your second job? Because we're, oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a personal question. Like, I, I spent five years at a school, and I was comfortable year we still had challenges but I was I was comfortable at least with where the program was going and then I went to a new school I was 30 years old and I, I felt like the world's oldest freshman again yeah no I think it's the same way at the second school second school in some respects may have been harder okay. uh, because it was a it was a the first school I was in a self-contained high school uh, although it was a unified district that I wasn't supposed to go to the middle schools. I wasn't supposed to go to the, the junior highs or elementary schools. I was That was hands-off. You had a full role there. You were doing band and orchestra and jazz band and music theory and music appreciation and study hall and lunchroom duty and, you know, I mean, you name it. The second school I was hired, it was more vertically staffed. So I had a lot more contact with the, with the junior high school people and the elementary school people. And I was appointed district band coordinator. Um, but... There were some people with some pretty hard, solid, fixed, this is the way we're going to do it kind of attitudes. Um, I remember uh, being invited to a picnic at one of the band director's houses before I ever started, and the main feeder and his, and his wife, who was at the other feeder, decided they were going to take me for a walk and tell me the way it had to be at this high school. So I just kind of smiled and nodded, you know. And, and it was at that point in life uh, that I realized... When you get into a conversation with someone, right, you get into a discussion, it's the person who listens that controls the conversation. You know, it's never the person who talks. If you listen, keep your mouth shut, listen, take it all in, be able to process it, you know, I mean, uh, that's the person that controls the conversation. So it took a couple, three years to really develop a friendship. Today, they're, they're, a couple, they're a couple of my closest friends in the world, you know. But, but there was a whole fear of, you know, I was the fourth band director in seven years at this high school. And the guy that would, had, had been there forever was this guy's old high school band director. He loved Mr. Batsky. And Ed Batsky became my dear friend. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. I loved him to death. And, um, uh, but in the interim, they had some other people in there that did an okay job, but and I, I, you know, these people were looking at me like, God, we're working to get these kids up to this level and they go to high school and they have this terrible experience. And, you know, so, but it's going to take, it just takes time. Yeah. So thinking of that, and, and I know you've always said no regrets and everything, but if, if Dr. Mangini were to go back in time and talk to Mr. Mangini, those, yep. you know, first, yep. I mean, would you give yourself any advice at that point? Or you, I mean, again, I know you have no regrets if you said before, but. You know, and, and would Mr. Uh, Mangini have listened to that advice too? I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about myself. <laughs> sure. Um, I probably would have suspended judgment a little bit more. Okay. If I could have, if I could go back and talk to myself, I'd say be a little bit more patient in rushing to judgment. You know, um, but no, I mean everything, everything. 
you know, life is fickle. Life works out the way it's yeah. supposed to. And I, it's, it's funny because everybody we've talked to has had almost the same similar, exact yeah. answer. We've yeah. talked to all these great people. I mean, Greg Bim was a great one where I think he told you at one point, you know, he said, would you go back and change it? Greg Bim was like, I, I don't know if I could be that lucky again. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, I heard about Greg when I was early teaching. It was really funny. He had a guy working for him in the percussion line by the name of Ward Durrett. Okay. Uh, Ward actually was the admissions director at Vandercook for a while. I didn't know that. But uh, when I was at my first job, I wanted to buy a set of drums, and I called McCormick's Enterprises, and the salesman's name was Ward, and he sold me a set of old drum cord drums for a few bucks. And I said, I'll buy them on one condition. I says, he says, what's that? I says, you have to come down and help me teach them. So Ward would come down, and I, so I had heard so much about Greg and the work he was doing at Marion in his early days, and then I had a chance to meet Greg at a Bands of America event in Whitewater when uh, Bob Buckner worked with him, and I mean, you know, I I, I have uh, the highest respect and regard for what Greg's done, you know. I mean, yeah, he's a, he's been a journeyman all, and he's done it under some very uh, adverse conditions at Marion. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, but it, I just think it is really coming to grips with what it is you want to do and 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 really believing in that and then just doing it. So to to piggyback on that um and this could be a little revisionist history so I don't if I'm wrong correct me um but I I have a memory of a story you told us of meeting Gary Green for some event in a parking lot. <laughs> oh, and no, you, no, no, and no, you yeah. saying, "Hey, he's he he had this tape of yep. a okay. child's garden of dreams." Right? And you knew at that point he well, was he, going to be going on to do great things, and he had a desire to, you know, be playing music that was just really sophisticated. And yeah. so, I guess my question for you is, uh, well, I'll tell you that whole story. Okay. So, uh, I was working Bands of America camp at Whitewater, Wisconsin. The first time I got a chance to meet Greg at one of those events, and and we had some buddies that I knew that had been around there, and and at that time, Tim Lotzenheiser. Um, was the executive director of Bands of America. So I was working that summer. I was doing trumpet and helping. And and, um, and so I got there, and I wanted to room with one of my buddies that I knew from college. And Tim says, no, I got you a rooming with Gary Green. I says, man, I don't want to room with Gary Green. I don't know who Gary Green is. <laughs> well, so I ended up rooming with Gary Green, and it was, a, it was a week that changed my life. I mean, Gary was amazing. He was a high school band director in Spokane, Washington. Um, so we were both smoking cigarettes at the time, so we would – stay up all night smoking cigarettes and talking band. And uh, at that time, I, I was really comfortable with what I was doing with the marching band. Um, had a lot of success with it. Uh, did some national things with it. Um, and we were talking, and, and I like concert band. And, and it was kind of a situation in our district that they would not let concert bands go to, go to festival or contest because most of those festivals and contests in the state of Missouri at that time were in the middle of the week and they wouldn't let kids out of school. You could do jazz band and, and marching band on weekends, and that didn't, and if concert band things would have been on weekends, you could have done that too, but they didn't want us to do that. So there really was no really push or emphasis to get it done. And they had changed the rule, or the state had actually changed it to make now concert band contest festival was going to be on a Saturday, so I was going to take the band. And I'm talking to Gary about it. I said, Gary, you know, I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And, and he says, I'll show you. Um, and he says, I'll come down and help you work your band. So along that time, that same week, you know, and, and, and Gary's talking about all the things he's doing with his band at University High School. And we were judging a marching band competition in Chesterton, Indiana, for the late Al Castronovo, who was a dear friend of mine, um, a dear friend of many. He was one of the greats in the, in the business. 
So we're sitting in a parking lot, like a Dairy Queen or a, something like that, and Gary's got this recording that I have to hear. I have to hear this recording. He's listened to this recording. It's changed his life, and it's David Maslankus of Child's Garden of Dreams. And, and so Gary's talking about that this recording, man, my kids, my high school kids will never be able to play at this level. They'll never be able to play this kind of music. I've got to go on. I've got to grow. I've got to, I've got to do this. So you've got to listen to this. So we finally got there, and I put on the headphones, and I start listening to this. And in about 20 seconds, the next thought that came across my mind was, am I going to get peanuts on my hot fudge Sunday or not? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the point was, you know, at that point in time in my life, I wasn't ready to listen to it. I wasn't, I wasn't along far enough. I wasn't, I wasn't musically mature enough uh, uh, to listen to that, you know. Uh, How old were you at that point? Oh, probably. I was probably in my third or fourth year teaching. Okay. Um, and, and after that fact, uh, you know, who had known that during my doctoral studies, I wrote, a, I wrote a paper on it, on that piece, you know. But so, you know, we're kind of taking, a, taking this down a different path right now. But, but you know, it, taught you, it goes back to what you talked about score study, and it <laughs> talks about the whole growth process. You know, I think... I kind of think about it like we're on a we're on a train, we're on a journey. This this whole thing is like a journey, and we're on a train, you know. And every once in a while, the train stops, and we get off, and we take a good look and listen. And then we have to get back on the train and go to the next stop. And I, I think too many people in our profession get on the train and they take a journey and they get off at a stop, and they maybe wait too long to get back on the train, or maybe they never get back on the train again, you know. There's a composer that they really like, and man, that's the train stop they get off of, and they really never grow much beyond that, beyond that point in time, you know. Um, uh, it's important to keep thinking about new things and seeing, okay, what's the next step? What's the next level? And, and, and all those stops that you made along the way, you know, all those compositions and composers that you've experienced along the way, doesn't mean that you can't go back there someday and visit, but... You know, some people just kind of put up stakes at a certain spot, a certain person, you know. And, and then, unfortunately, in our business, we, we tend to chastise the composer uh, for, for, for writing whatever they write. I mean, let's face it, we've all heard the names thrown about that, you know, you don't play anything by this guy. Well, you know, this guy was important in my growth and development doesn't mean that I just stop there and I stop growing and developing and I keep playing that, you know. It's like people that play ABA overtures. I, I've, I do so many uh, go out and work bands and guest conduct and things like that. The number of, of schools where you go and the concert is going to be like three or four pieces and, they're, and three of them are ABA overtures. It's like, how can you do that to your kids, you know? How can you play the same piece three times in a, in a concert? But that's where they are. That's where they got off the bus and they have no intention of getting back on. Um, so, you know, I, I think the hardest part um, to what we do, and, and the, the longer I'm in it, the more I believe that this is really true, is it's very hard to keep our perspective. You know, I, I once heard that a cynic is a passionate person who doesn't want to be disappointed again. And I think along the way, uh, a lot of us in the profession at some time, um, uh, we get disappointed. And it, it sours us. It, it skews our vision. It skews what, how we approach our work. It skews our perception of what's, what's right and what's wrong. And I think the hardest part in our profession is to 
is to be able to maintain your perspective of, of this is what I need to do, this is why I need to do it, and, and, and there are certain things that are going to happen, and I have to be oblivious to that, and I have to stay true to my beliefs and my and the things that I believe are the right thing to do. You know, keeping that perspective, sure. I think is the, I think that's the secret. Can I ask? Uh, so, in your job here at Vandercook, you know, in addition to training undergrads who are going out into the profession, you see possibly more current teachers than maybe any other music school in the country. Who people who are coming back over the summer to you know, get a grad degree, professional development through Mecca. Um, for for teachers who are out there probably in their first few years, what are some of the most common questions you get asked or pieces of advice that are sought or just common struggles that you see that you need to address? You know, it's really funny. Um, you get a lot, you get asked for a lot of advice. And, and most of the advice deals with, um, interpersonal communication problems. I can't get along with my principal. I don't like my colleagues. I, you know, there's, there's, just, there's just so much of that. Um, what, what I see along the way is that I see sometimes people lose their love affair with music. They, they, they stop loving music. They stop loving the sound. They stop loving creating music. They stop loving playing music. They stop loving listening to music, you know. And, and, and sometimes that happens because they over-immerse in it. Sometimes it happens because they under-immerse in it. You know, I talk, I talk to people, they go, you know, they went to a concert, they love the concert, and, you know, don't you just love music? And I said, well, you know, you probably love music more than I love music. I mean, you go and enjoy it, and, you know, I listen to it, and, 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 and you know, I have, to, I have to put myself in a place where, like, I'm just going to really enjoy and love the music. I'm not going to think about that note was sharp or I didn't like the balance of that or that was too fast or that was too slow. I mean, we, we, get, we get so hung up in trying to justify, rationalize our worth, right? I mean, we go to state convention and you go to a concert and you come out and the first thing you say to your buddy is like, what do you think? And then, you, then, then it starts, right? Oh, my God. Can you believe the tempo they took on that one? Did you hear the oboes there? I mean, oh, my God. The percussion section. I mean, what? Right? And so, so we spend all of this time trying to rationalize and justify our superior knowledge and our superior intellect of what we're doing when really we should just be applauding that guy and going, and, or, or gal, whoever it is in those kids, and say, you know, bravo for a job well done. Uh, I'm proud of you. You know, let me know if there's a way I can help you and find a time. And if you really have those strong beliefs, sit them down, talk to them, offer to help them, do something with them. But, you know, you don't have to go out and broadcast everything. You know, just, just, um, um, I, I just think, I think, so, so when, I, when I'm around all these teachers and stuff, you know, I wish they would reignite their love affair uh, with music. I wish they'd play their horn a little bit more. I wish they'd listen to more music. I wish they would listen to something other than band recordings. You know, I wish they'd listen to string quartets, and I wish they'd listen to wind, quart wind quintets, and listen to opera, and listen to Frank Sinatra, and Willie Nelson, and everything in between. One of the, the biggest things I heard, this was a huge impact from one of my teachers. And I was, first couple of years teaching, I was complaining about pet band. I had to do a pet band thing. And this guy I was talking to, like, it's one of the best. And he goes, oh, there's worse things out there than making people happy with music. 
You know, very very simple. But I look at him like, man, Pet Band. You know. I I love Pet Band. I mean, I got to tell you another story. Pet Band. This is a great story. So at my first job, you know, you're gonna do Pet Band. Make it fun. Right? I mean, you're gonna, you got to do it anyhow. Yeah. So let's not make it punitive. Let's make it fun. So we had the pet band. We called it the Golden Variety Show Band. Man, it was awesome. You know, we we're going to make a big deal of it. We're going to get kids excited about it. We got them shirts and, you know, we, we put together like little books and stuff. And we had a whole system on how we're going to do it. We would rehearse one afternoon a week after school and then the night before the game. And the rule to the pet band is once you're in, you're in, and once you're out, you're out. And if you want to play, you got to show up. Now, don't ask me what that means. It sounds really good, right? <laughs> once you're in, you're in. Once you're out, you're out. And you got to show up if you want to play. Those are the rules to the pet band. So the kids would come, and they were, and they were great. And this band rocked and rolled. Man, we had drum set and electric bass, and they were awesome. And, well, our reputation in the Kansas City area really started taking off. I mean, we were playing, we were playing conventions. We were playing for, you know... I mean, you name it. We were playing for everything there. We did home openers for the Kansas City Royals. We would, the, the, the guy who was in charge of the Kansas City Kings basketball team used to send me the, the NBA schedule for the Kings, and he'd say, take as many games as you want and bring the band. We love the band down here. So I was playing for, like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Dr. J and all, Larry Bird, and I was taking all the plum games, and our kids were sitting courtside, man. Got a chance to watch this. Well... One of the things that were in Kansas City was the NC, I'm sorry, the NAIA, small college, had their national basketball championship there. And we played the semifinal round every year, which was two games on a Friday night. So the band would go down and they would play and we'd get a lot of praise and the band were good and the kids took great pride in it and they looked good and they sounded good and man, it was, it was so much fun. So I got to the second job. That band was my first job. I got to the second job, and I'm, I'm there about four or five years. And the personnel director calls me in one day, and he goes, Charlie, he said, you know, I've never thanked you for the raise you got me. And I said, what? And he said, you got me a hell of a raise. <laughs> and I said, well, how did I do that, Dr. Martini? And he said, well, you remember that band that you had at Winnetonka? And he said, you'd always go to that NAIA basketball tournament? And I said, yep. Well, he said, you didn't know it, but about 10 rows behind the band, Superintendent Winters and Assistant Superintendent Wimmer and I would go every year and we'd sit there. And, you know, we weren't having very much luck at the high school where you're teaching now. And Superintendent leaned over to me and he'd go, Martini, why in the hell can't you get me a band like that? And he said, so the day I signed your contract, I called Dr. Winters and I said, Dr. Winters, you know that band that you wanted? He said, I not only got you the band, I got you the band director. <laughs> and he says, and you got me a hell of a raise. <laughs> so you talk about pep band. Yeah. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. You never know. So you go into it with a, with a crappy attitude and you just kind of get through it. And, and who's sitting there? The next school board member? The mayor? A business official? Somebody that could, right? Okay. So, I mean, no matter what you do, you got to give it well, your it best was, It was a great tool for us. We, we turned it into more recruitment stuff, too. We let eighth graders come in. We had Absolutely. Pep nights, all sorts of things. Community Absolutely. pep night. We got pictures of parents playing with their kids. They hadn't played in years. Yeah, so, and, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, we, we did a thing where the, of course, you know, after halftime, the, the you get something, you know, dancers are out there, cheerleaders, whatever you got out there, and they're doing, then the, the, the custodians have to come and they have to sweep the floor, right, for the last two minutes before the game. They, they come out with their big brooms and sweep the floor. Well, the band's playing during that time, right? 
So we got the custodians, love that band t-shirts, and then had big letters on the back. So they'd come and the band be playing and love that band. So we'd ask the, the custodians what their favorite tune was, and we'd get their tunes, and we'd play their tunes for them, you know. Man, they loved it. You know, people going like, man, the custodians are wearing band t-shirts, you know, it's like really cool, so. Well, we got about 10 minutes. I think we're going to have to schedule a part two and a part three at some point if he's up for it. But, um, you know, something I wanted to touch on is, uh, we'll go super serious and super dark here, is, is we've got a lot of people we know and you see stuff in the media and uh, you know, a lot of people afraid to be in teaching today and afraid of, you know, where education is going. Um, I mean, any thoughts on that? What, what are you fearful of? Say right that now? one more time. I, I think we've got people afraid of the profession. You talk about the train. We have, it seems like a lot more people getting off the train. We have some people not choosing to even go to Word. the station, yeah. you know, and, and I don't know if it's all factual, if it's media spin, but do you think there are things honestly to be afraid of right now with education? No. And with the pref- you know, profession? Nothing. No? No, nothing. <laughs> I, I think there are problems. Yeah. I think the older you get, the more you've experienced and the more information you have. And you look at the proverbial hill, you know, the proverbial hill, the young people listing you guys in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you're going up the hill and all you can see is blue sky. And then those of us that have crossed the hill, those in their 50s and 60s and, you know, you're going down the hill and all you can see is dirt, you know, and you're going kicking and screaming. And and so... Uh, I said to my wife this morning, you know, I said, God, I'm glad I'm 62 years old because with all the crap that I read in the paper about the government and the Senate and the, you know, I'm not sure I want to be around for the next 60 years. Well, guess what? It was that way when I was 23. There were problems in politics. They didn't get along. There were tax things. There were people talking about Social Security wasn't going to work. I mean, you know, it's going to work out. And if, and, if, and, if, and if you choose to hang your hat, on something you can't control, then you're in trouble because you will, you will become a victim for the rest of your life. I mean, the only thing I control is I can control Charlie. I can control me. I can control what I do. I can control why I want to do it. That's the only thing I can't control. I can't control you. I can't control any of our students. I can't control the world. I can't deal with that. So I got to just control my world. I have to make the decision, the best decisions that I can at the time. Um, if a kid loves music and a kid's been influenced by a music teacher somewhere along the way and it's been the best part of their life and they feel that that person's made a difference in their life and that person wants to go and make a difference in somebody else's life then by god they need to go and do it and 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 if that means that they want to chase their dream of being a professional player and make it in a symphony orchestra or whatever they want to do then they need to go and chase that dream and i have no right to tell them that they can't chase that dream i may not agree with them but i have no right to tell them that they can't chase their dream so yeah, there's a lot of problems out there. There's going to continue to be a lot of problems out there. And, and, and you just got to sit back and you've got to let time take its, take its course and let things kind of work out. And then you always analyze the situation and say, how can I take this situation and turn it into a positive situation for me? How can I make this the very best I can make it for me? Um, so, so that you never, you never lose. You always win. You know, how creative can you be to take, to take, the instruments that you have and say, okay, this is my ensemble and I'm going to make them sound good. That's, that's kind of our job. You know, if I fell victim to the fact that I don't have the kind of players that this university has, or, or, you know, I've got kids playing secondary instruments and I got to play at the Midwest clinic. Well, I can't play at the Midwest clinic with kids playing secondary instruments. No, you just, you, you know, you play the cards 
uh, that you're dealt. And and um, and so so for young people, uh, young directors, you know, uh, take a look at all of those things that are gonna are gonna give you an opportunity to succeed. And and do your best to check your ego at the door. You know, don't don't be so caught up in what you do. I mean, this whole profession is life, right? This whole profession, life, teaching, band directing, whatever. There's a certain rites of passage. You know, we bust our ass when we're young so that people will just give us our due. We just want to be noticed. We just want to be recognized. We just want to be appreciated for doing what some, would somebody tell me I'm doing a good job, right? So I'm going to go and I'm going to win a first place trophy because the trophy is going to signify that I'm doing a good job. I'm going to go to contest. I'm going to get a one rating so that it signifies I'm doing a good job, right? Well, won't somebody just tell me I'm doing a good job, you know? And I, and I think I think young teachers and young people don't get enough affirmation. We don't tell them that they're doing a, a good job. We don't we don't believe in them. We don't encourage them. And and so people start to get despondent. Now, on the other side of that, for the young people, they have to understand that they have got to create that they've got to create that network. They've got to create that that circle that provides them support, that gives them opportunities for support. You know, uh, Tim Lotzenegger says you're only worth what you give away. You know, so you, in order to get thanks, you have to give thanks. In order, in order for you to be appreciated, you have to appreciate others. You have to appreciate your students and your parents and your administration and, and, and your school board and your colleagues. You have to appreciate them. And, and once it's a genuine appreciation, eventually it's going to start to trickle back on you. But if you're so concerned about me, I, me, I, 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 me, me, I, me, you know, then, then, then you know, you're going to isolate yourself. And you're not going to get those strokes that you desire. And then you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to lose that perspective that we talked a little bit about earlier. And and it's not going to be any fun. Yeah. Well, I know we got to wrap it up here. I know you have a big busy schedule. So, last thing, you got. I, know, I you know desert I, desert island pieces. De- desert anything that desert, people should listen to right now, or what are you currently into? I I'm I'm not into anything right now. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm into reading right now. I'm, okay. I, I'm reading books. What are you uh, reading? Oh, you know, I just finished reading uh, the Wright Brothers, uh, the McCullough book by by the Wright Brothers. I've got several other books here. I'll give you some titles. Sure. I'm just kind of uh, I'm just kind of in the infancy stages of of, uh, of some of them. Uh, I'm I'm rereading Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. It's a great book on on performance and fear based learning. You know, there's another book called Art and Fear um, by uh, David Bagels. It's just fantastic stuff. Uh, I'm reading the the Road to Character by David Brooks. I'm really enjoying that book. Um, uh, and there's a whole another. I get. Uh, I was told about uh, there's a, there's a uh, a great book called Bird by Bird: Some Instructions on Writing, and uh, I haven't started that yet. But anyhow, as I've been doing doing some writing, uh, uh, the other thing I did was I invested in a pair of Bluetooth Bose headphones. Man. The newest ones. They are the awesomest things in the world. And so I've started to listen to a lot more music. And right. So my Is latest. It like the, the pieces are brand new when you get better speakers. That's well, yeah. Well, yeah, they are. But you yeah. have no wires and no cords and stuff. And you can put your phone in your pocket and turn on your headphones and that. So the, I've been listening to the. When Bob Reynolds was in, he gave me his recording of the Mozart Divertimenti with the Detroit Chamberwinds. So I've been listening to that. It's been kind of a lot of fun. So. Can I ask one last question? No. Sure. I'm good. Yeah. So just, <laughs> I, I know that, you know, um, 
you've what conducted now at Midwest every year since 1994. 22. 22. And you've had lots of people that you've worked with, you know, conductors who've come in and worked with the bands. Yeah. You know, we've we've started doing this because really we have some heroes in the profession. I'm just curious who are some of the people that through the years have meant something to you and who have uh, kind of helped you through uh tough times or helped you to see things in a different way or have really just inspired yeah. you? Um, I don't mean this to be sappy. Um, you talk about heroes and you talk people that inspired you, you know, and, and that, that's a big uh, wide set. Obviously, Tim Lotzenheiser is at the top of the list and Gary Green and Gary Hill, uh, who helped me so much in my growth and development, but I go back to my high school band director, Mr. Swanson, and my junior high school band director, Mr. Caviani, and the first gal that I started taking lessons from in third grade, Steria Dries, rest her soul, and, and going into college, Dr. Rick Meyer, my trumpet teacher, and Mr. Falcone, and Mr. Caviani, and I mean, I can go through the whole list, Dr. Pickard, and on my doctorate, you know, Professor Shatskin, I, there, there's just so many that have had such a positive influence, and, and, and I've tried to, in my own way, uh, say thank you to each and every one along the way. But my real heroes are guys like you. Guys that are in there and changing kids' lives through your work. And you're young and you've got energy and you've got a bright future. And, and so to the young people and the people that are in this profession teaching, uh, I have so much respect for you and what you're doing and the kinds of things you're putting up with. Um, you are truly my heroes. Well, thank so, you. Thank you. You are ours. And so, say so that we have it on on a tape for the record. Well, it's not tape anymore, but for the record, I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, we both. If you out there don't know this, uh, Don and I both Vandercook grads um, and sat in your ensembles for a couple of years. And um, I still very often think back to things that you said back then, and and you know try to emulate things that I learned from you. Um, and you've had a big influence on me. Absolutely. I hope you only say the good so. things. <laughs> I, There's a few good. I'd like to take back, but uh, okay. it's too late. <laughs> but I, we really appreciate everything well. you've done for us. And we'll say since we've started teaching, um, you know, you've you've been a constant mentor to us as we've as we've kind of, you know, yeah. The thing the thing that's through. funny is, is I think we we look at our mentors and we realize how man they were right most of the time. Yeah. All the time. And I know some of you, you, you might say no, but you know there there were things there were like nuggets of information we got. 10, 15 years ago that didn't apply until this right. year. And it was, right. it was like, oh. Yeah, you know, and I think I think mentorship is a whole other topic. That's be a, another great talk about. But I think as you're a young teacher, you look to people. I think later on in life, you label them as a mentor. You know, so if, if you're teaching now and you want to be a mentor to somebody, don't tell them you want to mentor them. Just be who you are and try to be the best you that you can possibly be and do as great a job as you can possibly be. Uh, you know, um, uh, Tim Lotzenheiser always told a story, uh, tells a story about when George Parks used to do drum major, and George would get these drum majors together, and, and it was like, um, uh, talked about, remember when you were a freshman and you looked up at that person sitting first chair in your section, you said, man, someday if I could ever be them, right? Well, guess what? You became them. And and so you're kind of that way with your teachers. I mean, you both had incredible teachers. Steve, what? Ken Snook was your high school band yep. director, and and Don Ted Lego was your high school band director. I mean, two of the absolute all time greats uh, in the world. 
And when you were a kid and you looked up to them and you idolized them and you still do, and you said, God, someday if I could only be them, be like them. Well, you know what? There are kids sitting in your band right now that are looking at you going like, God, someday if I could ever be like Mr. Piter or Mr. Stinson. You know, I mean, we become that. So um, being the best we can be is what we have to do. Well, thank you. And there's just one thing I want to add. I'm kind of going to crowbar this in there. Uh, But, you know, just one thing that I I continue to look to um, as a pretty regular resource, Dr. Mangini has done a lot of presenting at at clinics, um, festivals, things like that, and the efficient band rehearsal. uh, If you haven't found that online, just Google it. It's It's a great probably six pages that I reference often through the year Uh, so so look that up and and thank you very much for thank you guys thank you god bless you be well